Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians chapter 2 And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Well, we have come to chapter 2 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, if you remember, has been full of superlatives, hasn't it? It's an amazing charge through the wonderful works of God on behalf of his elect people, his church, his true Israel. In our last lesson, we found two analogies, or perhaps two parts of the one analogy. Christ is described as the head of all things, who governs everything, who controls history, who is bringing everything under subjection for us, for his church, his people. And then we saw the church itself as described as his body. Not a physical body, of course, but rather a visual aid of how the church relates to its head and how we need each other, how every part of the body is different, but yet each part is doing that purpose for which it was created, how every believer is working for Christ. Now we come to something truly amazing, to Paul's declaration of the gospel of free and sovereign grace in Ephesians chapter 2. And tonight, for a few minutes, I just want to look at this one single verse. It says, And you have he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And we don't need to go any further than that. And we won't be able to go any further than that this evening, because that verse is absolutely pregnant with wonderful grace what the Lord has done for us. So I want you to notice this evening God's sovereign work. And I want you to see the dramatic change that that sovereign work brings about in our lives. And then I want to finish off, God willing, by considering how deep is the spiritual death in which the sinner is entrapped. God's sovereign work. The verse begins, and you hath he, and you hath he. You're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast with Bob McAvoy. In every good study of God's word, we need to be really careful with the text, don't we? We need to make sure that we read it very carefully. We pay particular attention to the wording, to the grammar. The gospel message, you see, falls broadly into two parts. We might call it law and grace. The law that convicts us of our sin. Think of the Ten Commandments. Think of yourself and Examine yourself against the Ten Commandments and think how we fail to keep them. 
Think how we fail to keep them every day. And think how that failure drives us to sorrow and to repentance over our sins. So there's the law convicting us that we are sinners. And there's grace. Grace is what God does for us, forgiving our sins through the gift of his only begotten Son. Think of that wonderful verse that's so well known in John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So we have law and we have grace. And if we get those two parallel ideas mixed up or confused, then we run into dreadful error. Because works without faith or faith without works can lead us astray. Now, thankfully, there's a very easy rule of thumb to help us to distinguish in the scriptures what is the difference between law and grace. And it's this. This is a simple rule for biblical interpretation. When you read your Bible, anything that says do is law. And anything that says done is grace. All right. Now in this verse, and of all of chapters 1 to 3, when you're reading Ephesians, when you're reading any Bible passage, but we're reading Ephesians, when you're reading Ephesians, ask yourself, who is active in the verbs? Who is doing the work? In this verse, it says, and you have he quickened. Who is doing the quickening? And who is the passive recipient of that quickening work? Because this chapter, like chapter 1 and chapter 3, and this verse in particular, we have to note before we do anything else or teach anything else that God is active doing the work and man is passive. It is something that has been done for us. This is grace we're talking about here. Now, why is this important? Back in 2002, I went to Albert Bridge in Belfast. And I moved from Randallstown down to Belfast to live. I'm going to do that in reverse soon. And I went to a new church and there was a great province-wide evangelistic effort taking place at that time. And one or two of the people at my new church came to me and approached me and asked me if I would consider being involved in it. It was called Power to Change. It was an interdenominational effort with Anglicans and Presbyterians, Baptists, Pentecostals, independent churches all involved. As you can imagine, when this was put to me graciously, my immediate answer was no. Not because I wasn't interested in evangelism. And not even because such well-meaning initiatives often have dubious implications. After all, in one area of Belfast, a Presbyterian church had a power to change banner across the railings in the front of its church. And a local Roman Catholic church 
was displaying exactly the same banner on its steeple. My misgivings were true enough about that. But the main reason at the time that I disagreed strongly with the message that was being put out was that the central theme that was being promoted on the banners and the bill posters around this province was Jesus gives you the power to change. Now can you say what's wrong with that? Can you read this verse? And weigh up that message in the light of this verse and see what's wrong with that. Can you see how this message is in total conflict with that verse that we have read? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You see, in this verse, Jesus doesn't give you the power to change. Not to change your life. Not to change your destiny. Not to change your bad habits. Not to change your your parenting skills. Not to give up smoking. Not to change whatever lifestyle you desire. Jesus does not give you some power to make better decisions so that you will change your life on a take-or-leave-it basis. In this verse... God is active and man is passive. Here's the message. Jesus changes you. Do you see that? He gives you new life. The essence of this verse is that it is God who makes that positive change in your life and not you yourself. So it is God's sovereign work salvation and look at how dramatic that change is you hath he quickened who were dead you he has made alive when you were spiritually dead and separated from him now look at your bible look back at the text look at it look at the actual reading of the words. Don't look at me. Look at your Bible. What do you see about the words hath he quickened? Do you see that they're in italics? Have you noticed that? That's important. That's because these words are not in the Greek text. Now the translators have done their their work very well here. They have made it easy for you to understand What Paul was saying when he dictated this to the scribe who would carry it. The literal translation here would simply be, and you were dead of your trespasses and sins. Kai heimais, heiminakros. So why does our English Bible have the words, hath he quickened? Well, to get the key to that, you have to look at the verse again. And see how the verse starts. This is all about reading the text. Look at what the verse starts with. It starts with a conjunction. It starts with the word and. This verse is not a standalone verse. This verse is part of a sentence. A sentence doesn't begin with the word and. Have you been told that when you were at school? 
You don't start your sentences with and. You start your sentences properly with proper proper grammar. And simply means that this verse is connected to what has come before. Connected to what's been happening in chapter 1. It's part of a sentence. And Paul has been getting excited. He's been talking about our redemption. He's been teaching about our election and our predestination. He's been talking about our adoption into God's family with all the rights of inheritance as a son of God. He's been talking about how all of our sins have been forgiven through the saving work of Christ. He's been talking about how the Holy Spirit is indwelling us as our down payment of heaven. He's been talking about how we are being sanctified and made fit for heaven. He's been praying that we should have a greater knowledge and understanding of spiritual things, that our eyes would be opened. He has portrayed in extremely vivid language what God has done in the life of a sinner and he's beginning more and more and more excited about it and suddenly, without even taking breath, he exclaims with great wonder, and you were dead! And all this has happened! And you were dead! Can you see what the translators have done here? The words hath he quickened, are implied in what has already been said. We have been quickened. We've been talking about it in chapter 1 the whole way through, and yet we were dead. Paul will tell us in a few more verses a little bit more about this quickening. We'll see that perhaps later. But our English translators have been very careful that we should understand the excitement and the wonder and the sense of awe that Paul feels as he dictates this passage. So why is this quickening so important that the translators want us not to miss it? That's why I read for you the book of Ezekiel, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. It was a vision. In Ezekiel 36, God had told, uh, God told the prophet to prophesy the rebirth of his people, Israel. His whole people, Israel. Chapter 37, God tells Ezekiel that the land would be restored under the leadership of David. We read Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 24. Marvelous passage, full of the covenant of grace. God tells Ezekiel the land would be restored under the leadership of David. Ezekiel 37, verse 24, And David my servant shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd, all of Israel, only be one shepherd. The only people who will be in heaven will be those who are saved by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be nobody else. And shall also walk in my judgments, and shall observe my statutes and do them. Now, it can't literally be David when Ezekiel's writing. David's long dead at this time. This is a messianic reference. This is a reference to the future under the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true descendant of David. So God gives Ezekiel this amazing vision. 
the vision of a valley full of dry bones. He takes the prophet, as it were, to a cemetery. And he gets him to look across all of these dry bones that stresses in the scriptures that they are very dry. There are very many of them. And there's no flesh on them. There's no sinews on them. And he challenges Ezekiel. God challenges him. He says, can these dry bones live? And only God can do that. Ezekiel's told to prophesy. And the prophecy is the declaration of the word of God. Don't be thinking of prophecy in the sense in which American evangelicals think of it or the televangelists. That's not prophesy. Prophesying isn't standing at the front of the church and saying, look, there's somebody here the night has a sore ear. That's not prophesying. Prophecy is the declaration of God's will into a given situation. It is essentially preaching. And here is Ezekiel preaching the word. Preach the word. Prophesy the word of God. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he does that, what happens? The bones begin to come together. The bones begin to develop flesh and sinews until they become human people recognizable. And yet they're still dead. And then God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the wind. And he prophesies to the wind. And suddenly the breath comes into these dead bodies. God breathes new life into dead bones. Years ago when I was a a teenager, we used to stand and sing silly songs. One of the songs that we sang was a kind of a Negro spiritual. Are you allowed to say that anymore? Well, that's not politically correct. We used to sing this silly song, Dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. Now hear the word of the Lord and the foot bone connects to the ankle bone and the ankle bone connects to the leg bone and so it goes on. Now hear the word of the Lord. When Ezekiel declared God's word, the bones were quickened and they joined together and the breath of life went into them and dry, arid bones lived. And that's what God did at creation. Genesis 2 and verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And God will do it again at the general resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We will be brought up out of the grave. People who have been buried thousands of years ago, they'll be raised to new life. Get out of creation. And he'll do it again on the day when the Lord returns. And he does it at conversion. For in Second Corinthians 5 and verse 17, we're taught if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new 
creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. At conversion, we're given new life. You have a quickened who were dead. Revelation, of course, we learned there's going to be two resurrections, don't we? Maybe some people think there's going to be more. Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live on again until after the thousand years. That symbolic time speaks of the church age until after the thousand years were finished. Talks about the first resurrection. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Those resurrection saints, the reformed position is very simple. It is that at regeneration when God gives the sinner new life, when he saves the sinner, that sinner is raised from death to life. Paul teaches us here. Now the raising of a sinner from death to life is a resurrection. It is the first resurrection that we're going to experience. Now in case you're wondering, Jesus teaches this too. I want you to open in your Bible at John's Gospel chapter 5. Just to make absolutely sure that we know, you know that I'm, I'm telling you what's scripture. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Give you a minute just to find that. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Here's the words of the Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now what is the passing from death unto life? That's a resurrection, isn't it? Look at verse 25 in that same chapter. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. They that hear shall live. That's a resurrection too. But note how really carefully this phrase, the hour is coming, and now is. Now, how could a resurrection are be now and at the same time be not yet? We've looked at this before in Ephesians. How can a resurrection are be now and yet not now, still to come, present and yet in the future? How can the dead hear the voice of Jesus and live right now and yet in the future? Well, the now is at conversion, when we are brought from death unto life. Colossians 2 and verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. In Christ, we are raised to new life. 
And we have experienced that first resurrection that will guarantee that we have part in that second general resurrection of the dead at the last day when the Lord returns. So what have we seen so far? Seen God is sovereign in saving us. And we've seen how dramatic the change is that he works in our lives. He doesn't just give us the power to change ourselves. He brings us from death unto life. And lastly and briefly, let's see how deep is that spiritual death. Because he tells us here that that death is death in trespasses and in sins. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul has been praising the Lord for God's wonderful grace. And he's been praying for the church. And he's been doing that because he's going to get to an important point. He has been preparing his readers for what's to come. He's going to praise the Lord for them and assure them that they have been forgiven and that they have been given new life in Christ before he brings them to an understanding of how deep and how terrible is our human sin and rebellion against our creator. So he brings them gently to that place, having firstly assured them that they are forgiven, but in order to know how great is our salvation, how wonderful is our forgiveness, how much it cost, why God went to such great lengths to save sinners like us, we really need to know how deep is our lost condition, our sin, how pitiful, how helpless we are, and our human natural condition, we are dead trespasses and sins we're not just spiritually sick we're dead and that is a death that is eternal we're dead in our trespasses it's a word that means fault a deliberate offence something that we've done positively against God. We have deliberately offended him by our lives. We are dead in our sins. We've fallen short. The word is hamartia. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there's the point. In order to fully appreciate the greatness of the saving work of Christ, in order to know what he did on the cross for you and me and how effective the result of that work in my life and yours, we need to understand how deep was our lostness and how awful our state of spiritual deadness. Some years ago I was lecturing a systematic theology class we were talking about original sin, about the depth of our lostness. And I have to admit that most of the people who were at that class would not have been aware of Reformed theology. 
And I was talking to them about how they were dead, but this deadness that we have, spiritual deadness. And they were looking puzzled. And I said to them, look, I'll help you with this. I want you to come with me in your mind into a funeral parlor. When you walk in through the door of the funeral parlor, you will find that there are little rooms with the names on it of the people who are deceased. And I want you to come with me into one of those rooms. And I want you to walk over with me to the coffin that's sitting there. Look down on the person who's left this world. Now tell me honestly, what decision can that person make? And they all looked at me. He doesn't make decisions. His relatives make them for him or for her. They decide when the funeral service is going to be. They decide where he's going to be buried or cremated. They decide what he's going to wear. They decide how much it's going to cost. They make all sorts of decisions. But in his state now, he doesn't make any decisions. He may have left a will. He may have left instructions with the undertaker, but his family may well override every one of them. What can he do? What's he going to do? Can he get up and walk away? No, he can't. Can't he object to what's been done? No, he can't. He can't make any decision. He's dead. That's what Paul's saying here. How deep is the depth of your spiritual deadness? When you're lost in your sin, and you cannot even make a decision to save yourself, rescue yourself, get up out of your coffin and walk, You need someone to help you. Just like Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones, there is only one thing that will help, and that is that God intervenes. He does that through his word. The preaching of the word of God, through the declaration and the entrance of the word, that brings life. And only when we grasp the awfulness of our lost condition, Can we truly understand what the Lord has done for us? And you, that's you. You have he quickened. You have he given you life to. Who were totally dead and unable to help yourself and powerless in your trespasses, your rebellion. And your sins, you're falling short. Paul's going to spend more time in this in verse 2 and 3. And God willing, maybe in the future, if the Lord spares us, so shall we. What have we learned this evening? Three simple lessons. That God changes us. That salvation is not by any works of mine. It is all his work. And then we learn that we have undergone a spiritual regeneration, a resurrection at conversion, being brought from death to life. And finally, we learn that when we speak about our lost state, the best and most accurate and biblical way to describe that is being dead in our trespasses 
and our sins. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.